And so I wanted to introduce our speaker today uh, who's with us. Uh, Dr. Joe Grana is down here from Hope International University. He's a professor up there. Longtime friend of Pomerado Christian Church, longtime personal friend of Evan as well. And so uh, we just uh, welcome him and I'm handing it over to him. All right. Thank you, Dan. So good to be with you today. Uh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I'm going to give you a two-minute commercial, if I may, before I start preaching, all right? You let me do that? I just want to talk a little bit about what's going on at Hope. Two different aspects. One, if you know of anybody, either within the church, within the family, or your extended connections, of someone who wants to go into professional ministry, wants to be a pastor of some sort, we have a, a great program called the Church Leadership Scholarship Program. And tuition will only be $10,000, which in a private university, uh, there's nothing like that around. It's as close, as ballpark to state universities. So if you're interested in knowing more about that, there's a couple of cards out there after the service. I'd be glad to talk to any of you if you have somebody, and I, I'll be happy to contact them and talk to them. Uh, so th so there's, my, there's my commercial. The second thing is just to tell you what God is doing in other parts of the world and how I was blessed to be a part of that. Last summer, I was able to go to Egypt and Israel to do some teaching. In Egypt, I taught a class on the church, ecclesiology, for 110 church leaders from North Sudan, South Sudan, as well as Egypt. And it was just powerful. I mean, it was just an intensive class. People were really into it. It was just a great time. And then afterwards, we had a, a graduation ceremony. We have a certificate program there at both the bachelor level and the, the master's level. So these people did master's work, but we can't give a master's degree because it's done in Arabic and we don't have that accreditation at this point in time. So we give them a master certificate of ministry. So we gave out 50 of those and four of the others. And we're in a church in downtown uh, Cairo. There are 800 people in this church, standing room only, people from North Sudan, South Sudan, Lebanon, and Egypt graduating. And the Sudanese are, are really kind of fun. When they worship and praise, they have this little warble. I mean, I can't even begin to do it. You know, it's just a way that they rejoice the Lord until you hear these warbling going all over the place. And it was just a very exciting, meaningful time in that kind of context. And one of our graduates is a general in the Egyptian Air Force. Another young man who is a medical doctor who's giving up his medical career to become a pastor. And his brother is doing the very same thing. He's in the program and it hasn't finished yet. God's doing some work in other parts of the world. And you'll never hear about it in the news. You're going to hear about, you know, the things that you hear about. But God's at work and he's making a difference in people's lives. And for that, I rejoice. And I just wanted to share that with you because uh, I hope that could inspire you to see that God's working in the world, particularly in areas that we wouldn't expect him to be working. So. So that's, that's the overall commercial and all, so, okay? so I'm, I'm done. But thank you for the opportunity to come on this very special occasion and a special time. And some of you might be thinking I'm referring to the Super Bowl game. Okay? <laughs> that's not exactly what I was thinking of, though I'm going to run home after the service so I can watch the game. And it's going to be historic. On the one hand, is Brady going to uh, win uh, his sixth Super Bowl and be the winningest quarterback ever? Or is Foles going to foil that? <laughs> oh, yeah, you like that a little bit? Come on. <laughs> and have the Eagles end up on top. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the transition that's taking place here at Pomerado Christian Church. And when there are transitions, there are often 
responsibilities that are passed along. And in my context, uh, we have a graduation. A graduation recognizes the work that has been done, and now there's a commencement so that you begin new responsibilities based upon that. In track, we have what we call passing the baton in a relay race. And it's very important that the person who's running with it holds on to that until it's time to pass it on, and then cleanly gives it to the next person so that person can run, so he or she can get to where she needs to go to win that race. So passing the baton is a very important aspect of a relay race. So in the scriptures that we're going to look at today, passing the mantle. And I'm going to look at two people in the Old Testament and two people in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is literally the passing on of a mantle, passing on of a cloak, passing on the baton in a physical way. In the New Testament, it's going to be more figurative, where someone passes on the mantle to, to somebody else and lets them run from there. So with that in mind, I want us to go to the Old Testament first. And the first person that we're going to be talking about is Elijah. Elijah's name means God is Lord, or God is God, or Lord is God. But literally, in the way the word order is, is God is Lord. That's what his name means. And that's going to come up a little bit later. Elijah is a very significant person in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You may recall that Jesus was transfigured one day. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was Elijah and Moses. Why Elijah? Because he was considered to be the greatest of the prophets. And he was the one who represented that Jesus came to fulfill all that the prophets taught. Moses is there to show that Jesus fulfilled all that the law gave. He becomes the fulfillment of all of that. Elijah is also known as the one who is going to come before the Messiah. In fact, we find that person embodied in John the Baptist. Now, throughout my message, I might throw in a little sidebars here and there. And there's a sidebar there where many people, and there are many, who claim that the scriptures teach reincarnation. Because Jesus even says, don't you know that John is Elijah? <laughs> and in the first chapter of, of John, the gospel, there is that indication that, that John the Baptist is Elijah. And so some people say, well, there you go. There's reincarnation right there in, in the Bible. Now, other than being false, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that statement. See, there's one of the dangers of taking scripture just literally with the words. You've got to take what it is meant, that an Elijah-type person. But the point being is that Elijah was viewed as being such a significant person that his ministry, his influence, is going to come and, and prepare the way for the Lord and did so through John the Baptist. But we go to the Old Testament, and there's a couple stories that I want to tell about Elijah. Famous stories, just a reminder for most of us, a new for maybe a few of us. And the first is the prophets of Baal or Baal and Elijah. There is this fight, there is this debate between the Jews and the prophets of Baal. And they decide they're going to have a showdown to see who really is God. And Elijah said, let's go up on Mount Carmel and let's build a couple altars and sacrifice these altars and then see which God will bring fire down from heaven. There are 450 prophets of Baal. So Elijah says, you all number me. Why don't you go first? 
So they go and they build this altar. They, they offer, they put the sacrifice there and they call upon Baal to bring fire down from heaven all morning long, crying, praising, worshiping, asking Baal to do this, and nothing happens. Now, Elijah does a little smack talking here. Now, you, you might not think of that of a prophet. A man of God isn't supposed to talk smack, right? But Elijah does, and he starts to make fun of them, and he said, yep, where's your God? Is he sleeping? Is he off on a trip? Has he gone deaf? Does he need some hearing aids? And he starts making fun of them that nothing has occurred. And so all afternoon, they continue dancing around. They cut themselves and, with swords and start bleeding, which was a part of their, their, their religion, uh, religious practice. Nothing happens. Elijah says, you've had enough time. They put another altar. He puts a, a moat, if you will, around it, a, a trench. He has the people come and pour water three different times because he's trying to show that there is no trickery going on here. He prays to God, and God burns all of that up. In fact, it's very interesting where the text says that the fire licks up the water. <laughs> it licks up the water. It evaporates it all. And how do people respond? They, they respond appropriately. They say, the Lord is God. <laughs> just like Elijah's name. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. And they come and they worship him. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful event. And the prophets of Baal are, are all killed at that point in time. We have another story, and it's at the end of his life. In between, there are a lot of miracles, and there's a lot of humanity of Elijah. In fact, it's very interesting. After this mountaintop experience, we find that he gets depressed. He gets depressed and he says, I, I just want to die. He argues with God. I, I like the way that James puts it, the, gospel, the, the book of James in the New Testament. He said, you know, Elijah was a man just like us. And there he is, this mountaintop experience. He does this incredible miracle. He sees a part of this incredible, incredible miracle. And then afterwards, he goes down to the depths of despair, depression. Kind of like happens to us, maybe at different levels, different degrees. And he says he's a person just like us, but when he prayed, you know what, it, it stopped raining. And when he prayed, it, it started raining. It had, had an effect. And so James is trying to encourage us by saying, Elijah, this great prophet, was somebody just like us. He experienced the highs and lows of life, but God heard his prayers, and it made a difference. And God will hear our prayers, and it will make a difference as well. So we, we come to the end of his life. And we find the story in 2 Kings. In fact, I want to read some of it to you. 2 Kings 2, beginning at verse 9, as we read about this fiery chariot. 2 Kings 2, 9 says this. When Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel, and Elisha saw him no more. 
Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them apart and he picked up the cloak, he picked up the mantle that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. It's a dramatic story at the end of his life. Some people interpret this story as just being a way to say that he died. It's kind of like Enoch. You know, we have two people in the scripture who it claims that they did not die. It says about Enoch that he walked with God and he was no more. So some people would look at that way, he walked with God and he was no more. That is, he died. Most scholars, I think, at least conservative scholars, would look at that and say he walked with God and he was no more because God took him up to heaven. The same thing with Elijah here, that this fiery chariot is something where God transported him, beamed him up, if you will, into to heaven. I take the latter point, but I could see where other people have a different view. Regardless of what, what it is, there's, it's a dramatic event that takes place here in his life. And as a result, he is known as being a prophet of power, not only because of what he did with Baal, but because of what happens here at the end of his life. So that's Elijah in a very brief form. Let's go to the person that he is working with, is a man by the name of Elisha. Elisha's name means God is salvation. And through his ministry, God showed salvation. He was a farmer. In fact, when Elijah first encounters him, he's out plowing the fields with the oxen. In fact, it says that he has 12 oxen, which indicates to us that his family is fairly wealthy because most farmers would have two oxen, and he's actually working with the 12th one. And while he's working there, Elijah comes and places his cloak, places his mantle on Elisha's shoulders. It's an indication that he is going to be his student. He is going to be his apprentice. He is going to pass on his responsibility and his authority to Elisha. And it's through that whole process. He says, give me a double portion. Now, the double portion is what the firstborn son received in the family. You see, within that culture, the firstborn son got two-thirds of the inheritance, and the other sons got the other inheritance. He's asking for that portion for himself. And as we read in our text, it said that this is a difficult thing, Elisha, but you've got to be with me when you see me go. So Elisha then, we find a few things about him. Let's look at some of his stories, some of his miracles. He is, he's walking along one day, and some young men, now these young men here would never do anything like this, when they see an old bald guy, and I'm only old, I don't, at least I have a little hair left, but they, they see this, this old bald guy, and they start calling, bald-headed one. Hey, bald-headed one. And Elijah, Elisha, I mean, gets a little ticked off at him. Here we find a prophet also has a little bit of emotion. This is a tough story, actually, but I want to tell it just because it has some humor in it. So he looks at these guys, and he calls a curse down from heaven. And out of the woods, two mother bears, and you know what a mother bear can be like when she's really upset, right? You, know, you talk about that. Come and maul these 42 young men and does them in, I guess. So you, you want to be careful about you know, mocking a prophet or mocking a, 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 a bald-headed man. Thanks, Dave. 
he, he reminded me one of the first Sundays I was here, I choked him. <laughs> so now, now, now I get the rub your hair. <laughs> so it's kind of a tough story, but it has some humor to it, certainly. But then you say, wow. That's a little bit out of control, you know. <laughs> Somebody makes fun of you, you call bears out of the woods to get you. I don't know what you want to do with that, but that's the story that's here. Then we have another story about a general from Damascus, Syria. Uh, Syria is throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It's in our news today, too, but it's very much there. And we have the Naaman, who's a general in the army of Syria, and he has leprosy. He has a servant girl that he has, has taken as a slave, and she says to Naaman's wife, I, I know about this prophet back in Israel who can do great miracles. Maybe he can do something for Master Naaman. And so the wife tells the general, he says, well, give it a try. So they go to, to Elisha's house, and it, it's kind of interesting to me. He doesn't even come out to meet him. Seems a little rude, not very hospitable there, but you know, prophets are kind of independent, kind of their own type of guys, you know. And he sends out a, a servant and said, Tell him to, to go wash in the Jordan River. And, and Naaman's a little put off by that. He's put off saying, It's just a muddy old river. We've got cleaner, nicer rivers in Syria than they have here. I'm not going to do that. And so he starts to huff off to go back home. And his servant says, wait a minute, if I may, sir, all due respect to your general. If he had asked you to do something great, you would have done it, right? He said, yeah, well, I was expecting him to come out and talk to me and to tell me to do this great thing. He said, well, he's asked you to do a simple thing, and why don't you just try it? He said, well, I guess I came all this way. I might as well. And he goes down to the Jordan River, and he dips in the Jordan River seven times, and the leprosy is gone. And he goes back to Elisha and he tells him how much he appreciates what he has done and he wants to give him gifts. But Elisha says, no, you know, God did this. I just, just go serve him as you go back home. Powerful, powerful thing. And I think, let me go back to my first statement. I don't think he was being rude to him. I think he was trying to see how much faith the guy had. Okay, so that's why he doesn't come out and see him. That's why he tells him to do this. And, but next time he comes out, he, he comes out and, and does talk to him. So a, a powerful message here. But what we see is that when Elijah goes up in the fiery chariot, the cloak, the mantle comes down, and Elisha takes it. The passing on of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha. The authority, the responsibility, but even the, the, the giftedness that he had is passed on to somebody of the next generation. Now we go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we begin with a person by the name of Paul. And we know that his name originally was Saul. And there's a little debate about this. And I'll give you the debate. And you can decide where you land on it. The one is that he is Saul. And then when he's converted, God changes his name to Paul. But there are many people who believe that he was both Saul and Paul. Saul was his Jewish name, and Paul was his Greek name. And that within a Jewish context, he would use Saul. But he, you know, he had a day job. You know, he, was, he was a rabbi, or he was a Pharisee, uh, but he made tents. He was a businessman. And so in his business dealings, as he would deal with people within a Greek culture, that he would use the word Paul. 
And so it could be he, both Saul and Paul always, just depending, using the word, the name, according to the group of people he's dealing with, or that his name was changed when he's converted. You can go with that however you want. Bottom line is, we know that when we, he comes to us, his name becomes Paul after his conversion. And he has a dynamic and dramatic conversion, again, on the way to Syria, on the way to Damascus. And on that way, he has an encounter with Jesus. And that encounter changes his life. And for a while, he's blind. But then shortly after, when Ananias uh, baptizes him, now he sees. And that blindness is an indication of how he had been when he persecuted the church, how he was killing Christians. But now he becomes one who stands up and becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time, establishing churches throughout the whole Roman Empire. But wherever Paul went, something dramatic happened. I mean, this guy, it was not just you know, maintenance type of ministry. He is one that he goes someplace and riots start. He comes and he gets thrown in jail. He has a life where he is beaten with rods and he's whipped and he's stoned and he's left for dead. He is shipwrecked on the way to Rome. His life is a dramatic life. It is not an easy life. Sometimes we say that the safest place to be is within the will of God. I know what we mean by that, but we also need to look at it a little bit differently, that it's not always the safest place to be. It wasn't very safe for Paul. (laughs) And it wasn't very safe for Jesus. It was safe in the sense that when you're in the will of God, you have that, his spirit. You have his joy. You have his peace. You have his presence. In that sense, it's the safest place. But it doesn't mean the circumstances of our life are going to be the safest when we're within the will of God. It may be very dangerous, as a matter of fact, but we can know that God is with us and for us. So wherever he went, dramatic things occurred and happened, and God used him in a powerful way. But he had somebody else that we want to look at, and that is Timothy. Timothy, whom he called his son in the faith. Timothy came from a third generation of believers. His mother is a believer. His grandmother is a believer. But in Acts 16, we learn that his father is not. He is a Greek. Maybe that's why he is partially open to Paul being his father in the faith, because he didn't have a father who had faith. And so he looked for, he had a male figure there who could lead him, guide him, mentor him. Regardless, Paul has a close affiliation with this Timothy. What else can we learn about him? He helped write some letters. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the first chapter and the first verse. And I just want to point something out. That when we think of the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 letters. So we say that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Well, that's true letter-wise, but it's not true volume-wise. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than Paul did. Just try it sometime. If you take the book of Luke and the book of Acts and you add the pages together, and then you take the letters of Paul and you add the pages together, Luke, Acts are more pages than all of Paul's letters. Unless you think that Paul wrote Hebrews. And if he wrote Hebrews, then there are more pages of Paul. 
Now, having said that, if when we look at the book of Acts, chapters 13 through 28 are all about Paul, and chapter 9 is all about Paul. So when you, when you add all that up, you, you have a little bit more about Paul. But just looking at pages is just something to think about. But here's something else that is kind of interesting, that Timothy helped him write six of the 13 letters. And here I'm just going to give you one example. Look at this at 2 Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And then it goes on. Timothy is with him when he writes this. He's with him with these other writings. We're not really sure how all this worked out. At the end of Romans, it also says that Timothy was there, so it doesn't mention him at the beginning, but at the end. Also, at the end of Hebrews, says Timothy is there with the writer of Hebrews, whoever that is. It could be that some of the letters that Paul wrote were kind of done by committee. He had some people there together, and Paul's saying, this is what's on my heart and what the Spirit has given me. What, what do you think? I mean, how, how might we word this? Can we change this a little bit? Maybe there was some of the things he wrote that came from Timothy himself. We don't know. This is kind of interesting because Paul identifies Timothy as a co-author of this book. And we don't normally think of that because we usually give Paul the credit. I think he's the main person. The Spirit is guiding him. But there are other people involved that Timothy is a part of the writing of the New Testament according to these verses. So he, he's an influential type of individual, a son of the faith, who now in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy, we find that Paul says when he leaves Ephesus, I am going to have you take over. He passes the responsibility and he gives him the instructions in First and 2 Timothy of how to be a pastor of the church. He passes the mantle on. He gives the baton to Timothy because now he is older and he finds a younger person who's going to take over. So, so what does this have to do with Pomerado Christian Church? What does this have to do with our contemporary situation? I would like to encourage you to see that there's some parallels between what happened with Elijah and Elisha and Paul and Timothy and what's happening in the process of Evan and JP. On the one hand, there's an older person who's giving the responsibility to a younger person. When Paul is writing Timothy, he says, let no one despise your youth. Now, we have words for infant, toddler, child, adolescent, young adult, middle age, elderly. They had those words too. And the word that he uses here is actually someone who is between 20 and 40. <laughs> You say, well, somebody who's 40 is not necessarily very young. You know, that, that was my perspective. When I was in high school, <laughs> culture, culture taught us when I was in high school not to trust anybody over 30. <laughs> anybody over 30 was suspect, okay? That's what I was taught when I, by culture at that point in time. And young and old is really a matter of perspective. You see, at my age, somebody 40 is a young person. <laughs> they're not a youth, but they're a young adult, right? Paul, when he is writing, is my age. And so when he looks at Timothy, he says, don't let anybody despise your youth. Evan is ballpark my age. And now you have a senior pastor who's coming who is 33 years old. About the age that Paul would have been when he was converted, about the age that Jesus was when he was crucified and resurrected, 
Let no one despise the youth, but rather encourage and help. Paul was willing to pass the mantle onto a young man to carry on his ministry in Ephesus. You're in the position as well that Evan would be passing on that ministry to JP. Along with that is the authority and the responsibility of a senior pastor position. And my encouragement is that you would give the new senior pastor that authority as well as responsibility. It's certainly going to take time for him to gain the trust and to gain the credibility. That's understandable. But it becomes much easier if the church as a whole will give that kind of respect and that, that legacy that has been done through uh, Evan's ministry might be able to continue. You, you see, the DNA of Evan has been here for some 40 years. And I know this is a big transition, and it's a big deal to make this kind of difference, but you can make the difference. You can take an attitude from Elijah to Elisha and a Paul to a Timothy and be able to take it to an Evan to a JP. And so I encourage you to embrace that. But know that it's going to be different. It's bound to be different. Some of those differences you're going to like, and some of them you're not. But I hope you embrace them nonetheless. Elisha was different than Elijah. Timothy was different than Paul. Paul's this type A personality, strong, just, you know, right in everybody's face. And what does he write to Timothy? In 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, uh, God didn't give us a spirit of cowardice, but of power, love, and self-control. Apparently, Timothy's a little more timid than Paul. And Paul, the great type A personality, is trying to push Timothy a little bit more. So allow there to be personality differences. Allow there to be uh, the way things are done differences. And embrace that rather than resist it. Finally, I would encourage you to have this perspective. Expect God to do great things. No matter what, it doesn't discredit the past, but it honors the past actually to do something great in the future. And God has brought about this time of transition during this period of time, during this time of search, during this time of vote. Now I encourage you to say, God, what are you going to do? We're expecting great things to happen at Pomerado Christian Church, and I want to be a part of that. I want to support it. I want to be a part of supporting our new pastor. I want to support the rest of our staff that together they can lead into the future so that people's lives can be changed forever. Because that's what's ultimately is important, isn't it? That people come to know the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, to know him and the power of his resurrection. Let us pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for this church and for what they're going through right now and their willingness to take the step. I thank you for Evan and for his willingness to take the step. It's not easy for him, Lord. I, I know that it's not easy to, to make this kind of change, but I know that you have led him to this point. You've led the church to this point. Help lead the church into the future. Bless JP, bless Dan, bless the other staff members, the elders. Guide them as they lead the congregation, and together I pray that the church will, will stand behind and gird up in prayer and through service and attitude a desire to see the mantle passed on, the baton to be given so that the finish line can be crossed and the victory can be won. Thank you for that opportunity. Be 
going forth, Father, with your spirit and with your power, each person in this church and the church as a whole to your glory. In Jesus, in your name I pray, amen. Transition and change can be really, really difficult. And I think for a lot of us, as, uh, as Joe mentioned, maybe find ourselves at a different place uh, in this transition for our church. But also, I think, to be at a right heart um, for those, uh, for that, we, we need to come here. Um, and so in just a moment, uh, Susie's going to lead us in some worship for a communion. But I think we also need to come here and we need to realize in our own hearts that no matter what change, no matter what change is around us, no matter any transitions that we have in our lives, um, for me personally, uh, this January has been filled with a lot of unforeseen events and change that I did not think was going to happen, not related to uh, the church. It's in those moments that are very difficult. We need to cling to, we need to hold on to something uh, bigger than ourselves. And so I wanted to share with you guys out of uh, Isaiah 53 uh, to, help us, to help us get into um, and remember this communion. And so um, Isaiah 53, verses 10, 11, and 12, and it says this, but it says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, referring to Jesus. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. If Jesus was going to follow through and make this sacrifice, he was going to see the offspring. He was going to see the overflow of that in saved lives in us. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. We skip down to the bottom of verse 12. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded, interceded for the transgressors. Uh, 2 Corinthians reminds us that he became sin on our behalf. He became sin who knew no sins so that we may become the righteousness of God and and, you know, our lives are surrounded with change. Our lives are surrounded with uh, difficulties. And wherever we find ourselves this morning, no matter what our life looks like, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, this is a place. This is a place we can remember what Jesus gave. And we have, there is no place for complaining. There's no place for uh, excuses. We just get to sit and remember and partake the body and blood of Jesus as he was that sin offering. Uh, one of the worship songs that we sang earlier said um, that Jesus brought heaven down. Our sin was great. His love was greater. And I think that's where we are this morning. God, thank you so much for being that sacrifice. Thank you that as we go through change and transition, as our church goes through change and transition, God, that we hold to something so much bigger 
And as we bring our lives here this morning, maybe this week, maybe this month, maybe this year, maybe it's been full of difficulties, maybe uh, hard and difficult things have happened to us, maybe we've made choices um, that have negatively affected our lives or the lives of others, God, but we just, we come here recognizing that you have given it all so that we may partake in your righteousness. So we thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've made your faith, if you've made that commitment to Christ, we invite you to take communion with us. That's it. Uh, may the Lord bless and keep you. May his face shine upon you, bring you peace. Thank you so much for coming out today. We hope to see you guys next week. Take care.